0: You know, I think what we all realize during this quarantine is that life is short and we've got to kind of enjoy things and part of that is taking care of your brain, you know, which sends all these happiness chemicals throughout our our body. Absolutely. Well, and let me ask you if this analogy is wrong. Like, I feel like, you know, the fight or flight instinct when there's danger is something that would, let's say 30,000 years ago, probably would spike for people and then go back down to normal very quickly. Whereas I feel just even before this pandemic, I feel like we're constantly in this low simmering fight or flight mode in our brain, but we're just sitting still and staring at a computer screen where all the lions and tigers in the jungle our brain thinks are. Definitely. And of course that probably increased during this time, but just in general, I want to figure out best practices for all these things.
1: Well, I'm excited for today's conversation because there are things that we all can do to optimize the neurochemicals that allow us to focus better, sleep better, feel better. So here's the interesting thing about dopamine. Dopamine doesn't care about the deeper meaning. It's not like if you get a like that your brain is doing some really fast subconscious processing and it says, "Okay, a like equals this equals this means my life is secure and I feel good." It doesn't do that. Dopamine works on much shorter time scales. Dopamine tends to get engaged in whatever you're focused on. So it's kind of a positive amplification. You can train up focus. You can train up goal-directed behavior.
0: All right, so I'm starting off the day. I want dopamine to kick in. I want focus, happiness, excitement for my goals. And I want to be super smart. Okay, so let's talk about some behavioral
1: things. And then we can talk about nutritional and supplementation things that really push it a little bit harder.
0: So once again, Professor Andrew Huberman, uh, professor of neuroscience at Stanford, uh, we had him on a few weeks ago to talk about uh, specific neuroscience, neurobiological ways of dealing with anxiety, stress, uh, the brain in you know during this lockdown and quarantine. But I got so curious about what are all the neurochemicals? Like you keep hearing about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin and the relationship to cortisol and other stress chemicals. How can I, I selfishly asked Andrew back on because I want to optimize in almost uh, like a superhero kind of fashion. I want to optimize my brain to be as happy as possible, as energetic as possible, as smart as possible. And so I want to know what practices I could put in place to basically boost my happy chemicals, if such a thing is possible. So, Professor Andrew Huberman, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me. Great to be here again.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. I, I, you know, I've been using, you know, the stuff you suggested the last time. Things like um, inhaling twice and then the deep exhale, or getting at least some, a few minutes of panoramic vision per day, or you know, making sure my meta- metabolic uh, system is is you know, aligned with the first sunlight. I've been going out in the morning just to see the sunlight for a few minutes. So uh, having kind of small goals to achieve during the day. So that's, I guess, good for the dopamine or serotonin, one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. All the stuff you suggested I've I've been using and it's been great, I feel like in general. And then of course I've been kind of limiting as much as I can and it's hard, social media. So that helps too.
1: Yeah. Great, um, great to hear you're doing those practices. You know, those practices, even though they seem small and they none of them take very long, um, they sum to really raise the baseline of everything that you're doing. They improve your sleep, they improve your mood, they improve your metabolism, they improve everything because they really are the the, the anchor and the foundation. So I think of it as like if you're like a boat, it's you really can't get out to sea if uh, you know if you're stuck in the sand. These are the things that kind of bring the tide in far enough so you can really push off. And then maybe today I, it sounds like where we might be headed is um, you know, once you're out to see, what are the things that you can do to really optimize that journey? And um, and I use this analogy because if, if you're not taking care of these baselines, um, that the ones you referred to, morning sunlight, a little bit of evening sunlight, maybe even um, some panoramic vision, trying to stay off social media, especially in the late hours and middle of the night hours. If you don't do that, you can perform well for a short while, but you go you go crashing back down really far, it's like, let's stay with the analogy and say it's like getting marooned on an island and um, then you're stuck. So if you have those basic practices in place, you're in a position do, to do a lot and to do it a lot better than you normally would.
0: Well, and, and let, let me ask you if this analogy is wrong. Like, I feel like, you know, the fight or flight instinct when there's danger is something that would in, in let's say 30,000 years ago, probably would spike for people and and then and then go back down to normal very quickly. whereas I feel just even before this pandemic, I feel like we're we're constantly in this low simmering fight or flight mode in our brain, but we're just sitting still and staring at a computer screen where yeah. all the lions and tigers in the jungle our brain thinks are and Definitely. and of course that probably increased during this time but just in general, I want to figure out best practices for for all of these things, because you know, I think what we all realize during this quarantine is that life is short, and we've got to kind of enjoy things, and part of that is taking care of your your brain, you know which is which which sends all these happiness chemicals throughout our our body
1: absolutely. well, I'm excited for today's conversation because there are things that we all can do to optimize the neurochemicals that allow us to focus better, sleep better, feel better. And some of those are behavioral practices. And um, uh, if possible, we can also get into some of the nutritional and supplementation practices that really make a lot of sense. You know, um, my lab doesn't work on those things specifically. We work on the behavioral stuff, but um, through some consulting that I do for um, special operations military, um, a little bit of work with some athletes and some other folks, you know, I've been uh, looking at this experimentally and in the real world for a long time as well as the things that I do and there are absolutely things that we can all do to get better and feel better and these are not uh you know as far field as um prescription pharmaceuticals um nor are they just accepting that oh you know the basic uh, american diet or whatever is going to give you everything you need because it's it's not and i think nowadays people um fairly assume that um uh it we need to do Extra things in order to bolster our health and our mental functioning, and everyone's looking for that—not just an edge, but how to raise that baseline high enough that you're really performing at a very high level, which is what those communities I mentioned have to do every day under very right. high-stress situations for decades.
0: And how do they? How do they find you? Like, how does the? How do the special operations military? They they just like look in the phone book, huh? Is there a Stanford neuroscientist we can call? Uh, or like, how do they? How do they call you and say we really need your help?
1: Yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, let me think about what portions of that story I can reveal. Um, Classified.
0: Yeah, not all of it. Um, it's
1: fine. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, anything I talk about is uh, is fine for uh, you know. But basically, um, some people contacted me after some uh, work that we published, as well as some uh, some consulting that I did. Um, they had heard through the grapevine that my lab works on stress and high performance, and came by and visited, and and we spoke. And then as we got to know each other better. Some of those folks from those communities, we got to know each other better. They mentioned that there were people in their communities that uh, could benefit from some of the knowledge. And I have some. I also happen to have um, two or three very close friends who uh, were in the SEAL teams. Um, one's retired, two are, um, were active duty for um, nine plus years in the SEAL team. So I got to know people um, that way, as well as, um, Canadian Special Warfare, I got to know those guys through some um, different circles. But yeah, eventually, you know, they realized that I'm somebody who thinks about the science, but thinks about how the science can be exported to different communities. And then um, they started telling me about some of the things that uh, needed optimization. Obviously they're already functioning at an extremely high level and we got to work and um, And we've been doing, you know, regular work for a couple of years now and the work's gonna continue, I hope. Uh, it's a, it, they're wonderful communities to work with,
0: yeah. Have they said, "Oh, this has really changed our, our skill levels or our, our, our performance"? Or what have they? What have they? What kind of feedback have you gotten?
1: Uh, well, the feedback's been really strong because, and the work is expanding because um, obviously there are a number of different groups within that community. The work is expanding. I think the basic feedback was, "This is all new. We hadn't heard about this before." and we're going to implement it. And I'm actually in, in regular contact with um, some of the guys that are active duty, especially up, up in Canada, and they give me feedback. And so we're constantly iterating. You know, the, the advantage of working with communities like that is, A, they're all super motivated. They all really want to be there. You know, any job you go to, there are always a few people that don't want to be there. You don't find that in special operations, right? At least I haven't experienced that. They all really want to be there. They're all trying to play at an A++ level. and so And they like to optimize and uh, tailor things to their own uh, unique needs so I'll get um, I'll get texts or contacts I go up there from time to time or um, or out there as the case may be and the and we're constantly iterating and and there's also a lot of exciting developments in the world of um, neural machine interface of building out technologies for measuring biometrics and interfacing with um, our natural biology so the plan is for the work to expand over the next few years. So yeah, the feedback's been good. It's been a lot of fun. And um, and I consider the work uh, among the most rewarding work I'm involved in these days.
0: And like when you find out something new about, oh, dopamine or serotonin or any of these neurochemicals and you apply it to yourself, do you feel uh, a, a change or is there some kind of, how do you know it's not some sort of confirmation bias that's kicking in where, oh, this is my idea, so it must work. Yeah, well, um, I think this is the first podcast where I've ever revealed this, but I've been doing,
1: you know, looking at these things since I was a teenager, since I was uh, maybe 15 or so, I started getting interested in um, in this whole space of, of, of human optimization. Um, and that went with fitness and martial arts initially, but then in school, I wanted to be able to study longer, harder with more intensity and remember more. So I, uh, and I didn't want to resort to recreational drugs because those will give you a quick, spike and then you'll drop down way below uh, your ba- your initial baseline. Um, and so I've been looking at this for a long time. And so I think my system's pretty sensitive. I'm pretty tuned in. Now, of course, uh, you know, we always have to be careful about uh, confirmation bias. Um, I keep careful notes. I actually get my blood work done pretty regularly. And I take careful notes uh, of everything I do. I've never shared those notes, but to me, they make a lot of sense and I track them. So my calendar looks something like... Uh, you know, a day planner for a professor combined with a little bit of the the stuff from my consulting work, combined with um, the various things that I'm doing and taking, um, and how I'm sleeping. I rate everything on a one to ten scale every day. I keep track of everything. Oh, that's great. Um, and I have for years, so I I think I'm pretty tuned into it. And I like to think I'd Mike, If I have a confirmational bias, it's not running the show anyway. Hopefully, what
0: do you what do you keep track of? One sense, so quality of sleep. Do you keep track yeah. of like your food or exercise or
1: yeah, so I make sure that there are a few things I do every day. Now, some of those like getting panoramic vision and viewing sunlight in the morning, I just do naturally, so I don't log that. But I always, you know, across the week, I make sure that I get five at least five uh, bouts of movement. And those are that's either going to be cardiovascular or it's going to be resistance work. And I try and get two or three of each, okay? So that's going to sum to about five or six each week. I, I'll mark the intensity of that, I'll mark, um, and then I, and I keep it brief because if you have too much of a in-depth tracking, then it can get a little bit burdensome. I, I'm careful, I, I, I like to eat and I eat you know, most foods, I eat carbohydrates, I eat proteins, I eat fats. We can talk later about how to do that at different times of day to optimize focus and optimize sleep, that, um, something that works really well. Um, so I'll pay attention to whether or not I've gone off my kind of standard thing. Um, I'm not eating on a specific clock, but um, I'll track that a bit. I track my supplementation and I, I keep my supplements very consistent. And then I'm generally trying something new all the time. And, um, uh, you know some of the thing I I've tried some pretty esoteric stuff um we could talk about uh Himalayan G. we could talk about Fedogia agrestis which is a Nigerian shrub that's involved in the luteinizing hormone pathway we could talk about all sorts of things but if i if i'm doing something i'm only doing that so it's a pretty controlled experiment and i'll run it for 8 weeks and then i'll step back and and take a look and again this is just the science i'm doing on myself but i've made recommendations in the last year to, I would say, well over 200 folks that I work with um, about especially um, supplements that are safe for virtually everybody to enhance sleep. And the feedback I've gotten is tremendous. And that's not just from special operators or athletes. That's also from moms and dads, uh, people my age, people younger, uh, A number, you know, we could talk about why taking melatonin might be a bad idea and why things like Ambien and stuff like that eventually can start causing problems and that there's some, probably some safer routes that people could go to optimize brain function and sleep.
0: Yeah, the one time I ever took melatonin, I mean, sorry, the one time I ever took an Ambien, it's like, I think this is about 11 years ago, took it once and the very next day I got my first migraine ever and i've hardly ever had a migraine since and i never had a migraine before so it was definitely the ambient and it was just a disturbing experience yeah the, you know those
1: drugs work for some people and for other people they cause a lot of problems i mean if we want we could just dive in with sleep if we want to get to that but i'll
0: follow well, your well, lead well i'm i'm actually just curious yeah, yeah let's just run down let's run down the neurochemicals like okay like okay dopamine yeah. is always considered that you know, everyone. Everyone uses the word dopamine. I don't even know if it's overused or not. So, supposedly, if someone likes my Facebook post, I get a dopamine spike. If someone, if I, if if someone takes Adderall, they get a dopamine spike. If they take cocaine, they get a dopamine spike. If they're happy for, it, if the girl says yes when you ask her out, you get a dopamine spike. Yep. Yep. What is this? Is is dopamine like the super drug, super neurochemical, or what is it?
1: Okay, so let's talk about um what are called neuromodulators. Neuromodulators include things like dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine. I'll describe what each of these is and what it does. Um, But the modulator word is key. And that's because what these chemicals do is they enhance the activity of particular brain circuits and brain areas and suppress the activity of others. So indeed, the the neuromodulator dopamine when it's released, it goes and it makes a bunch of brain areas work better and a bunch of areas work less. Okay. And the areas that it makes work better are generally the ones that are involved in energy and motivation. And in particular, dopamine causes a perceptual effect of making us focused on things that are outside ourselves. Okay. So it enhances our well-being inside. But rather than make us quiescent and kind of calm and make us want to stop there, we want more. It puts us in
0: an outward-facing mode. So what does that mean? Like, like, what is it? I don't want to get too much into the science, but like, what does motivation mean from a, and what does well-being mean from a, a brain point of view? Yeah.
1: So dopamine, when I say it makes us uh, motivated and outward-facing, generally dopamine works with another neuromodulator, neurochemical called epinephrine, Epinephrine is in the body and in the brain. It's sometimes called adrenaline, but in the brain, it's called epinephrine. And dopamine and epinephrine are buddies. And they, when dopamine is released, epinephrine tends to be released. And when epinephrine is released, dopamine may or may not be released. This is very important. Epinephrine is involved in generating a sense of agitation, urgency, and desire and willingness to go, to move. Like, let's get up, let's do this, and we're really excited, okay? Or it can generate a energy and a motivation and agitation, but doesn't know where to go. And so if dopamine is there, there's generally excitement, that feeling of energy and kind of even low level anxiety, it feels like excitement. And if dopamine is low, it feels like agitation and it doesn't feel good. It feels more like what we would call stress. But those two, but so if there's dopamine, there's generally epinephrine, but if there's epinephrine, there isn't necessarily dopamine. So just to review, we've got dopamine is kind of rewarding, feel good, and motivation. Epinephrine, and this is broadly speaking, is energy, a little bit of agitation, and it's kind of the fuel to get going.
0: So when you, when you say rewarding, is that why, like, if I get a like on a Facebook post or if, if uh, it feels like a reward, so dopamine?
1: Dopamine makes you want more dopamine. You know, there's this great book called The Molecule of More. I think I may have referenced it on the last podcast. Maybe I didn't, but let, let's just briefly review dopamine because it's really important. Dopamine is is released when something good happens, but it's also released in anticipation of things, okay? And it it makes us excited. It's like the when we reach a milestone and route to a goal, it's released. It's um, You mentioned drugs like cocaine and amphetamine. When people take drugs like cocaine and amphetamine, it makes people very outward facing because the way that, Dopamine modulates the circuitry involved in our perceptions it places us more in touch with what's going on outside us than inside us we're just sort of at this heightened state of good a goodness inside we feel great and we want we want to go out into the world and do things now the epinephrine is going to be released in in concert with that and get it's part of the motivation and part of the uh, you know the energy to move forward process but as i mentioned before epinephrine can also be released on its own pure stress without excitement is just pure epinephrine
0: mm-hmm. so so correct, correct me if i'm wrong like i just i try to think about this from you know how we evolved so clearly evolution somehow rewarded some chemicals that were developing in our ancestors and probably made some chemicals that were useless to our continuing life you know disappear so i always think of the way i understand it and correct me if i'm wrong to, like if we see, if we're looking for food in the jungle and we see there's an apple at the top of the tree, we might have dopamine because we haven't gotten the apple yet, but we know if we get the apple, we'll be rewarded in the tribe when we come
1: back. That's right. Dopamine, well, it, anytime you're placing your attention on an outward goal, I don't care if it's a financial goal, it's a, it's a personal goal, that the dopamine system is queued up to look for milestones that tell you that you're on the right path. And you can imagine why this evolved to be the case. If you were an animal with no eyes and you're just navigating by scent, you get onto a scent trail and, oh, that smells good. Okay, great, great. Yes, it's got to to increase your forward movement in that direction. And it does that by making you feel good and giving you encouragement to go down that path. Then let's say that the scent goes, the scent disappears. Okay? Now you're going to look around, you're going to start looking for it again you're going to start looking for it again, and then you're on to it again. And now, eventually, you get to the food, or you get to the mate, or you get to whatever to water. You get to whatever it is that you were seeking, and then there's a dopamine uh, reward. And there's something very important, and called the dopamine reward prediction error. It says that the dopamine response that you get at the end equals the reward that occurred, the amount of dopamine for that reward, the big end zone kind of finish line dopamine minus the reward predicted. If I'm anticipating stuff like crazy, like, oh, this is the path, this is the path, this is the path. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, you know what? We're going to be indoors for quarantine for the next 18 months. There's a massive disappointment. Dopamine gets crashed down to the floor. There's a circuit in the brain that involves a structure called the habenula. It suppresses dopamine and it disappoints us. It tells us the path that we took was not the right one. And so the Mother Nature installed these paths for for rewarding the right paths
0: and for punishing the wrong ones so so it seems like uh, and, uh, what if I diversify my possible number of rewards? So like I could say either I succeed in, you know, I don't know, having a best-selling book or I spend more time with kids on lockdown. okay. <laughs> like if you kind of diversify the rewards in your brain,
1: Yeah. So, so let's let's talk about this because it's this very important and it brings up another neuromodulator. So just to quickly recap, dopamine is reward, anticipation, and motivation. It's involved in all of those. It's secreted at different amounts depending on where you are in that journey and where you've been on that journey. But it's, it's all those things and it's really about outward facing the things that you don't immediately have and it puts you in motion and it works with this other neuromodulator or epinephrine that to get you going and to keep you moving. It's like a rocket thruster. Now there's another reward chemical and system in the brain and that relates to serotonin. So we have multiple reward systems. The serotonin system is engaged when we feel rewards for what we have in our immediate environment or we already have in our possession. So when I sit down with my bulldog at the end of the day and give him a good scratch, I think about how much I love him, or even if I don't, that's likely to, promote the release of serotonin. If you hug your kids, if you um, have a a call with with a family member and you're feeling really good inside, these have been called, not by me, but by others, the here and now rewards, as opposed to dopamine, which is really about the rewards that are out in the world. So the serotonin system can be accessed anytime, but it tends to promote quiescence and calm. It doesn't engage that norepinephrine system. It's more about that warm, soothing, I'm good with everything I have. And you can see why nature would have installed both reward mechanisms. One that gets us out of the cave and pursuing things, taking risks and evolving ourselves in our culture, and reward system that makes us content with what we have, at least for short periods of time, so that we don't overlook the bonds that we created because those bonds are very important for the safety and the reassurance that we need in order to feel like we can go out and seek rewards outside that safety
0: so so let me ask about the relationship between the two so let's say it's thirty thousand years ago i'm hunting for food i see the apple at the top of the tree so i anticipate oh if i climb up the tree everyone's gonna love me back at the tribe because i'm gonna get this apple and bring it home that's dopamine and then once i get the apple and climb down from the tree now do i feel serotonin once you get uh, in keeping with your analogy, once you
1: get back to the the group and you have the let's hope it's a bushel of apples and they they're loving on you you're and you're you're the you're the hero you're the king and they and you feel the the bond of your tribe that's serotonin and I, I just want to mention that there are some hormones that support this that give these two systems buoyancy and you've heard you probably heard of one of them before one of the hormones that gives the serotonin system buoyancy is a hormone called oxytocin. It's actually, oxytocin is actually a a peptide hormone. It sort of acts as a neurotransmitter in the brain that's actually involved in milk letdown in lactating women, but men make it also, and women make it also even when they're not lactating. And it provides... support to the serotonin system in general and it really enhances pair bonding and bonding between parents and child and child and parents it's actually secreted most in response to physical contact of skin we have receptors that trigger these circuits and so you can imagine why this was important babies that just kind of got left on the side while people while the whole tribe went to go get apples or people weren't interested in nurturing that baby too much didn't do too well but that the whole tribe probably didn't do too well so they're the oxytocin and serotonin system work together to support this here and now feelings of warmth and well being. These are rewards and quiescence. They tend to promote stillness. And then the dopamine system is involved in the get out there and pursue it's really about pursuit and getting more of things that we don't already have and so when i hear stories of very successful entrepreneurs that do have incredible you know financial success and then i hear about their personal lives crashing or they're off doing transcendental meditation retreat retreat number 35 um, trying to find themselves or doing outrageous amounts of psychedelics to try and be happy because they're miserable. And everyone says, wait, how can you be so miserable because you have all these resources? Well, they kind of, in my view, they overplayed the dopamine system and they underplayed the the system of serotonin and oxytocin. And when I see someone that I consider a true high performer, that's somebody that really knows how to toggle back and forth between both. I'll mention one example just to, to maybe hammer it home. Just recently, it's quite sad actually, but he was um, pretty... Uh, old at this point. Don Kennedy, who was the former president of Stanford, I actually knew him as a family friend known him many years. This was a guy who was president of Stanford, commissioner of the FDA. He was president of the AAAS science organization. He was a phenomenal guy, but he also was a great dad, a great father to his kids. He ran every morning. He was just a nice guy. And when I was a kid, I, I kind of studied Don because I was like, how does he do all this? And he said, I'll never forget this. When I I think I was maybe 14 or 15, he said, you gotta work hard. And at the end of the day, you have to look at everything you have and you have to really enjoy it. And that's just the dopamine system and the serotonin system in a nutshell.
0: That's interesting. So so a couple of things. One is, I didn't know that the serotonin and oxytocin were bundled together. I thought they were always two separate, but equal neurochemicals that had different purposes. So serotonin rewards you if you make the accomplishment that triggered the anticipation for for the dopamine. And then oxytocin was when you finally delivered that to the tribe so you know that you're going to be, so that you actually do officially move up your status in the tribe and you're rewarded by oxytocin.
1: That's right, these bonds are so crucial to the evolution of our species, right? Because we can't just all be out there seeking and seeking. You know, drugs of abuse um, uh, form a really nice frame for this. If you think about people who take cocaine and amphetamine, it's all about getting more of something. They're very outward facing. In general, they can be kind of abrasive. They're not warm and fuzzy, at least not when they're taking. people who take drugs that enhance the serotonin system like marijuana and cannabis, and I'm not here to judge, I'm not a cop, I'm a scientist, but those drugs tend to pe- make people very happy with what they've got. They might get hungry, but they don't generally make people get up off the couch and go um, pursue things. And so these systems, when they're really ramped up by those you know, drugs of abuse, you really get to see their um, their their extreme state, but in general, these are chemicals that support healthy living provided that we toggle back and forth between the two of them. And this is why I think gratitude practices are terrific because gratitude practices, just appreciating something that you have really enhances serotonin um, and to some degree to dopamine as well, which makes you more excited about pursuing things again. But I should mention, um, you know, there are antidepressants called SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, their net effect is to increase serotonin in the system. And they can work very well for some people to relieve depression, but the side effects associated with SSRIs tend to be reduced appetite, reduced libido, reduced drives, because they trick the brain into thinking you have everything you need. Whereas um, there are antidepressants such as uh, Welbutrin, I forget the chemical name, I can never pronounce it, I think it's a which is more in the dopamine norepinephrine system. And that antidepressant was developed for people that didn't do well on SSRIs. And that drug tends to make people feel better, but it can increase anxiety because it brings epinephrine along with it. And it tends to make people feel kind of agitated. So drugs of abuse, um, antidepressants, and these different natural behaviors, they, they give us a window into these two different reward systems that we really should be thinking about all the time across our day, across our week, you can't just be hard driving and in pursuit, and you can't just sit around and, and navel gaze and appreciate the fact that you're alive. You need to toggle back and forth between uh, different activities that promote uh, each and both of these.
0: That's interesting. So what about uh, something like these benzo, whatever, the, like Xanax or clonopin Okay. Okay, so then there's a there's a reward system called the opioid system,
1: and this isn't the opioid crisis. That's a different conversation. This is endogenous, meaning released by your own neurons, the endogenous opioid system. The endogenous opioid system is very interesting because it's generally associated with long duration effort. So, people who run very long distances that get that runner's high they might get peaks of kind of euphoria during that high. I I try and do one long run a week. That's the only run I do actually. Um, But during that run, I rarely have these sense of euphoria, but it's more of a low level sense of wellness. It's a little bit more like the serotonin system, but those endogenous opioids are generally secreted in long duration effort. They actually have a analgesic or pain killing ability. And this, and if you, what they do is they make us feel less. We don't feel the pain of the effort uh, maybe until later. Now, the opioid crisis has been sparked by the fact that this new class of drugs, that um, like OxyContin and others, that stimulate release of of endogenous opioids. Because remember, the drug isn't an opioid. You take the drug and it makes you release excessive amounts of this opioid from your own neurons. You're, you're using your own supply of opioids. But when those drugs, um, have us release opioid into our system, they act as potent painkillers because they're so potent for the receptors and they tend to overwhelm the reward system. So I, my definition of addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. You know, initially, mm-hmm. um, you know, you take a substance perhaps whether or not it's recreational or it's prescribed or even if you do something, you know, you do some an activity in life like video games and, it, get, and they, it brings you pleasure. Now, we have to put a definition on what we mean by addiction. The baseline of your life, meaning the stability of your relationships, the stability of your profession, et cetera, can be flat, it can be downward, or it can be upward. I can get addicted to anything according to my definition, progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure, but I have to drink a lot of water before the baseline of my life starts to go down sharply I don't have to do much heroin before the baseline of my life starts to go down sharply. So when we think about these systems, what we really want to do is we want to enhance the release of these neurochemicals through, ideally through behaviors without having to ingest anything. But everything we do, eating food, sex, Uh, getting warmth when we're cold, getting into an air conditioned room when we're hot, they are all gonna tap into these chemical systems just like they did 10,000 years ago. The question is the extent to which the behaviors that we're engaging in, the things that we're ingesting, whether or not those keep the baseline of our life flat, they lower it, or in many cases, they can enhance it. So we've got dopamine, serotonin, which goes with oxytocin. We've got the opioid system for long duration effort and pain killing. And then there's there's, there's another one which is the GABA system. And the GABA system is the one that shuts off our forebrain, turns off our thinking. Um, in the kind of wellness culture, it sounds a little woo, but in the wellness culture, culture, sometimes people talk about getting into wordlessness. Sometimes people do this through dance, they do it through movement. Is they this do like it- you know, this Is this like flow? This could be like flow, it could, and this is, but on a more basic um, kind of everyday level, this is what happens when you're falling asleep at night. You got to turn off your forebrain. And the reason people have a couple drinks to do that, which you know may or may not be a healthy practice, depending on what you believe and who you are, the reason people have a couple of drinks is because they want to shut off their forebrain because it increases gap, the release of this inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA, and that and so the forebrain will shut down. This becomes important later when we talk about tools for enhancing sleep because basically to get to sleep and stay asleep, you need to shut down your forebrain. You have to move away from thinking and doing and start just kind of being. But that's very hard to talk yourself into. So GABA would be the other one that I'd throw into the mix. And then if we really wanted to spin off into neuromodulation, um, we could also talk about the endogenous cannabinoid system. Um, People hear cannabinoid and they think, oh, well, we make cannabinoids naturally. Therefore, uh, marijuana and stimulating the release of cannabinoids is probably a natural behavior. Um, That's not true. Sorry, folks. Um, Again, I'm not a police officer. I don't care what people do. for their own personal behavior, you can do what you want. But the fact of the matter is endogenous cannabinoids, the ones that we make inside us, are a little bit more like those opioids. They were designed to provide a mild uh, relaxation and painkilling response, but they're involved in the formation of memories. They actually have a biological function that's separate from what people normally think of as uh, cannabis. So, Remember, just because your body makes something naturally doesn't mean that you want to radically increase the levels of that thing at any one moment. And in fact, when you do that, you run into trouble. People often will ask me, you know, what are my thoughts on cannabis? I'm not a pot smoker. So what I always say is, "Um, look, I'm not here to judge, but I doubt it's going to make you smarter. And in kids, I am very concerned about the lack of motivation and the, it basically shuts down the forebrain a bit. It slows down your, your mental processing. And people will say, well, you haven't tried this strain or that strain, and I'll say, yeah, you're right, I haven't. And I'm not, I'm not saying everyone has my job um, and needs to do my job, but if you want to be sharp, you want to be not just able to pursue things, but you want to be able to toggle between these neurochemical systems, I recommend that people approach these things with, um, at least with the information in hand and, and some caution. So does marijuana make smart people dumb? No but does it make people who are amotivated and um, more amotivated?
0: Yes. And so so endogenous cannabinoids, are you saying it helps you remember things? Because that would be like the opposite of, let's say cannabis.
1: It's involved in memory formation. And then drum roll here, it's no surprise. It's also involved in forgetting. We have active processes in the brain that are designed to discard certain memories and events. And you want those memories and events marked in a very specific way. And there's a reason why marijuana causes a um, forgetfulness. Uh, it has to do with a suppression of the forgetting um, circuitry. It has to do with um, what sort of lowered glucose metabolism in certain brain areas. I mean, it's lowering the metabolism of the brain. And again, for your listeners that that like to indulge, I'm not here to judge. I just we should just be honest about the biology.
0: So, so okay. So I'm still trying to understand a little bit. So uh, endogenous cannabinoids um, help you remember, but also make you forget? Like what does it, what's it do?
1: So under conditions of learning and memory, certain brain events get tagged for strengthening so that you remember them in a future time. And other memory events that are associated with that get tagged for forgetting. So at your wedding, you, you know, certain things are being tagged for memory and there were plenty of things that you experienced that were tagged for forgetting. And the cannabinoid system works in in a very complicated way, actually, to tag certain things for memories and certain things for forgetting. Remember that all these chemicals are just the chemicals, but they act on different receptors, and the receptors determine what the function of a molecule will be. So, the, I'm talking in very general terms today. I realize that, um, but That's okay. the you know the the general contour of these things is the way I described. But the receptor pathways that each of these. Neurochemicals tickles will create forgetting or will create um, you know enhancement of certain memories. And right now, there really isn't a uh, a fundamental understanding of the cannabinoid system at the level that would allow me or anyone to say, okay, taking cannabinoid X is good for promoting this type of memory, but it won't impact uh, forgetting. I don't think we're we're there yet. And the CBD craze is very interesting. This isn't something I've tracked really carefully, but you know the, com- the commissioner, or maybe it's former commissioner, the FDA was starting to really look at this carefully because the CBD thing kind of you know, it snuck out like wildfire. It's not regulated. And it, the one thing we know for sure is that in a pretty broad and careful evaluation of all the CBD products that were out there, most of them are way off from the doses that are listed on the label, way off. And, and that could be higher or lower. So we know that. And CBD likely has effects on some of these pathways um, as well, but we, we don't really know what those are yet. There just hasn't been a lot of science done.
0: I have to say Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in airbnbs like in about a month i'm going to coco beach which is right next to cape canaveral i'm going to watch some rocket launches i'm going to of course be staying in a very nice airbnb on the beach and it's just such a great experience like the whole world is available to us now because of airbnb but whenever i'm at an airbnb i always realize you know i the home that i left to come to this airbnb I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway business summit. And I was so excited because side by side with the business summit was the Norway chess summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting thing jobs will pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free ziprecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ziprecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So so just to catch up and then I want to understand how to activate each thing and when I should activate each thing and so on. So dopamine, is it gives us energy, motivation. Um, it excites us to anticipate good things. There must be some uh, uh, excitement, like why is it triggered? Why is dopamine triggered or excitement triggered when, you know, and just in this cliche example, I get a, a like on a Facebook post or I win a game of checkers or whatever. Uh, so here's the interesting thing about dopamine.
1: Dopamine doesn't care about the deeper meaning. It's, it's not like if you get a like that your brain is doing some really fast subconscious process and it says, okay, a like equals this equals this means my life is secure and I feel good. It doesn't do that. Dopamine works on much shorter time scales. Uh, it really, dopamine tends to, get engaged in whatever you're focused on. And it, it tends to increase focus itself. So it's kind of a, um, a positive amplification. Think about it, I don't, I don't play ping pong, but occasionally I'll go to a party and people will be playing a game like ping pong or horseshoes or something. And you see these competitive people, they're like, yeah, yeah. And they get super into it as if it meant something, right? And that's great. You know, It's a game, it's fun, and you're getting dopamine release and there's some social bonding too. But the point is that as you narrow your focus on a goal, the dopamine system is primed for you to go for more wins and to do better, regardless of whether or not that's embedded in some larger life goal. So the dopamine system and the likes you get on Instagram are also the reason why you can wake up, let's say at seven in the morning, you look at your phone, you know you shouldn't, you should probably go do something else, but you start looking on Instagram. And at 7:30, you're you know, a half hour later, you're like, I'm still on here. What am I doing on here? And then mm-hmm. you go look at, you go make a cup of coffee, you come back and now you're engaged in a conversation there. And then in the afternoon, you, you might, or you might not stop to think like, I was pursuing something just to pursue it. And that's why um uh, this book, The Molecule of More, that I didn't write, but I wish I had, it's a beautiful book, um, really, uh, you know, nails home this idea that dopamine wants more dopamine. It tricks you into thinking that you're, you want more dopamine of whatever it is that you're focused on. And that's why things like intention and really getting clear on what you're what you're going after and clearing the decks of other things in your mind, it's really important before you go down that path of dopamine. So, you know, that great marketing, great social media tools, um, uh, people who are very good at dating and relationship, um, either consciously or subconsciously know how to tap into these pathways. They really know so how to how to lay out the breadcrumbs so that you just want more breadcrumbs.
0: So so it seems like any a- addiction, whether it's to an activity or a drug or whatever, seems to be related to to too much focus on dopamine because you're getting you you keep you keep getting pleasure and you keep getting this feeling of more and more That's to right. continue the pleasure.
1: Yeah, but let's but let's not forget that dopamine has this amazing power that a drove huge aspects of human evolution. It it allows us to lean into risk, right? To fight large animals, to venture out long distances when we have enough resources. Um, Think about when two teams play in the Super Bowl. And I have to imagine that they are both going at max effort the entire time. And at the end, one team wins. Now, one team is depleted and exhausted because they've both been churning out norepinephrine like crazy. Both of them hopefully have had some wins where they've had a touchdown or they've gained some yards, made a field goal or two. But all of a sudden, the team that wins, they're not exhausted. They're jumping up and down. They have energy for days and their energy just went through the roof in a millisecond, in a millisecond. And that tells you it can't be hormonal. Hormones act on the timescale of hours to days to weeks. It's dopamine. That's dopamine. So dopamine has the capacity to take us from down in the dumps, or in max effort with thinking that there's no way we can continue. And in a heartbeat, reshape our whole perception of everything and restore our energy levels. Can't be glucose, insulin, you, know, you can go eat anything. Can't be blood sugar, that's not what it is. And dopamine has that power. The other things that release dopamine, you may have experienced this, is humor. If you're working with people or you're just having the worst day or the worst week or the worst month and somebody cracks a joke, all of a sudden, it's like you've been restored in a second. That's the dopamine system. So it has a dark side, right? It can be you know endless pursuit of pursuit without a goal in mind or endless pursuit and then you reach the big goal and then you haven't tapped into the serotonin system and so you're left without relationships and other ways to gain rewards. But it also has this incredible property of rejuvenation that can allow us to not only endure but to, renew and regenerate our ability to lean into hard effort again. It's a really miraculous thing that we all have installed in us.
0: Right. And so, and then, and then serotonin is, like you said, it's this here and now neurochemical. It makes us a little bit more satisfied with what we have uh, and it's related to oxytocin. So we we treasure our relationships more, touching more, and, and maybe our position in the tribe feels a little bit more secure. So that kind of is this serotonin, oxytocin, you know, back and forth that's kicking in.
1: Yeah, serotonin forces us to slow down and hopefully to appreciate what we have. And you know, if, if someone never has ever been trying to talk to you and wants to have a real conversation, you've got some place to be and you've got that kind of you know thing in the back of your mind where you're thinking, I got to go there and I got to go there. You're in a kind of dopamine norepinephrine mode and they're they're trying to experience a kind of serotonergic bond. They really want to feel heard. They want eye contact. They want to feel understood. Those are two different neurochemical systems that in that moment, they're kind of incompatible. Um, and so it's up to one person or the other to decide if they're going to shift the other way. But uh, I feel like a lot of misunderstanding in life and a lot of um, failures of, of, mis- of communication have to do with when one person is in a kind of quiescent, kind of um, paused mode and they want to really experience something right there and then. And the other person is in a mode of, more and more more anticipation. Okay, got to lean into the next thing.
0: So, is it like if you're having an argument with your spouse or girlfriend or whatever, and and you're you have you you're late for a meeting, you're rushing out the door, he or she wants to talk and have a a, a big conversation? Can you say, "Listen, your dopamine is obviously peaking. My serotonin is the opposite. But I have a feeling it, later my serotonin, seroton- yeah." yeah your serotonin's peak my dopamine is off the charts later this evening my serotonin will be back to normal and we can have this conversation then Would that be like a legitimate thing to say?
1: Sure and I I will never um, promote drugs of abuse because that's not my role but I, I think that people need um, to think about the behavioral practices, whether or not it's meditation you know calming themselves self-soothing, breathing whatever it is that they need to do to bring them to a place where they can have those conversations in the same, uh, neurochemical regime. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Now, it's also true if you have a team and you're trying to motivate your team and someone's not motivated, you're really, tr- you're tr- you need to get them outward facing. If someone's down in the dumps, you know, low, depression can be low serotonin and low dopamine. Oftentimes it is. People need to feel that there's something worth working for. That's that outward facing thing. Um, they need to feel like there are rewards to be had when in pursuit, and there are rewards to be had when in pause. And it's no wonder that the the drugs that promote one system or the other tend to succeed but also fail because they so far there ha- there hasn't been a uh, wonder drug that can tap into these uh, systems simultaneously, uh, at least not without side effects.
0: So so, so there's the dopamine, uh, norepinephrine, uh, system that's and then there's the serotonin oxytocin system. Then there's these endogenous opioids, which are like endorphins. So mm-hmm. maybe you're 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 running and you need that extra oomph, and these endorphins kick in. Yeah, they're painkillers. Yeah, right. And th- and then there's the GABA system, which kind of relaxes us, shuts mm-hmm. off our thinking a little bit. Yeah. And then there's endogenous. Cannabinoids, which give us a slight feeling of well-being, I'm, I'm not yet sure mm-hmm. about what they do. They can, but they're, the endogenous cannabinoids are involved in memory formation
1: and forgetting.
0: Okay, and so now, all right. So, so I'm starting off the day. I want dopamine to kick in. I want focus, happiness, excitement for for my goals, and I want to I want to be super smart. Mm-hmm. Okay, so
1: let's take that example and let's talk about some behavioral things that give the dopamine system buoyancy. And then we can talk about nutritional and supplementation things that really push it a little bit harder. So there are a couple things that we need if we want to be energetic and in focus. And I'm going to add another neurochemical on focus as we go along, just a heads up. So if we want to have energy, we need that norepinephrine system working well. It works alongside a a neurochemical called cortisol. And cortisol is always talked about as bad, this stress hormone, but you want cortisol high during the morning. You want it to peak in the morning and get you going. It's what wakes you up in the morning out of sleep actually. And to do that, that's why I'm a big proponent of this, getting sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning. And if it's in your practice, or, or you're inclined to do it, trying to get some movement first thing in the morning. You don't have to do your full bout of exercise. If you do, can do it in the morning, great. But you want to try and get some movement, maybe at least 10, 15 minutes. It could be a walk, could be a run, could be jump rope, could be jumping jacks, could be anything really, just movement. That's going to get the norepinephrine system primed because you have the adrenal glands, which sit above your kidneys, and they kick out norepinephrine and cortisol and get your system awake. Now, the dopamine system is really about picking a goal and a target. So this is why it's so crucial to identify what you're gonna try and accomplish in say the before noon or in the first hour of your day or the first two hours of your day, really setting a goal. And even just setting that goal, you should just mentally reward yourself that you're on the right path for setting that goal. And to the extent that other things start to leap to mind, you should really try and push those aside and stay focused on that goal. The reason is if you can stay focused on that, And you're gonna get the dopamine reward as you move forward. It's gonna feel, might feel a little tough depending on how well you slept or how poorly you slept. But if you reach that goal, you're gonna feel a dopamine release. It's gonna get you better at focusing on singular goals. Now, there's another way to get your dopamine in the morning that's gonna take you off track. And I'm guilty of doing this. The other way to do it is to wake up, you feel kind of groggy. You take cocaine. You start looking at social, you take, well, well okay. So Okay, we could talk about that. I've, I've not done that, but we could talk about that, what that would do. If you take cocaine first thing in the morning, you would be hyper-focused and hyper-alert. And the problem is, if there's too much norepinephrine which is also triggered by cocaine your energy can be scattershot it can be your attention excuse me can be scattershot you can be pursuing anything and everything from moment to moment you have a look at somebody who's really really high they're like everything's a stimulus they're like a puppy they're like everything's a, an object to pick up and play with and then they're on to the next thing you know they've got like you know a little saliva in the corner of their mouth cuz they're like frothing at something but it's meaningless and then they come down they realize it was really meaningless so Assuming that's not, um, we don't want people doing that. Uh, we definitely right, don't right. want people doing that. So you are moving toward your goal and you can also get your dopamine from picking up your phone and starting to you know, flip through Instagram. You'll get your dopamine one way or another, but you're not really on a specific path unless your job is to go provide likes for someone that owns an Instagram account. So you want to pick a targeted goal and you want to move toward that goal. And ideally you do it in the early part of the day because it really does prime this dopamine system to be able to do that more regularly. Movement early so what, in the- So what's, the, yeah. what's yeah? the
0: relationship between the sunlight in the morning and the exercise in the morning and being able to, uh, uh, you, you know, does the level of dopamine change if you do that when you start yeah. picking a target, a so, goal and so on?
1: Yeah, so here's here's the thing that's really key is forward movement. Whether or not it's toward a cerebral or intellectual goal, or it's physical exercise, for literally forward movement triggers release of dopamine. This uh, my lab published a paper in 2018 in the journal Nature showing that forward movement, especially when there's a low level of stress in the system, when you're a little stressed, promotes the release of dopamine. Okay, forward movement also quiets the activity of the amygdala, this threat detection center in the brain. Forward movement toward a specific goal and you're always in forward movement of some kind. The question is, are you in forward movement toward a focused, valuable goal or not? So that's why you know, you hear about these practices of setting out the plan the night before, or um, you know, some people wake up and they're very focused. Other people like me, I wake up and my mind is a little still discombobulated from sleep because in sleep, our mind is discombobulated. We're not able to form plans. And it takes me a while to transition out of sleep. So I use 10 to 15 minutes of exercise as a way of of amplifying that epinephrine and dopamine system. So I'm actually just moving towards something. This morning, I didn't have much time. I literally took a a 10-minute jog. It's not my round of exercise, but it has me moving forward and it puts me on a path. So there are a couple other things. Um, Again, not a nutritionist. Um, I don't study supplementation, but there are some things that I do that I think are very valuable and that people in various high-performing communities do. One is a lot of people nowadays are are into intermittent fasting fasting itself will stimulate the release of norepinephrine. And interestingly, it will also slightly increase the amount of dopamine because it puts you in kind of anticipation of a goal. Now, normally that goal is food if you're very, very hungry, but there's this ancient mechanism whereby when our blood glucose is low, we tend to have, even though we might be a little um, hungry and a little bit agitated, it tends to focus us on things outside ourselves. It means we need something outside ourselves. So we're less content to just sit on the couch or less content to just be quiescent. As, uh, contrast that with after you've eaten a big meal, right? You're, you're probably more comfortable to just sit down and relax. And that's not an accident. So if you're going to practice intermittent fasting, I don't really do that in a strict way, um, you could do that in the uh, in the morning. Sometimes people find that that helps them improve their their focus because fasting can improve focus. Now these are short term fast. I'm not talking about day long fast. I'm talking about just waiting, to, pushing your first meal out. Now in terms of supplementation, okay. I don't own a supplement company, so but I want I want to be clear. But there are some supplements that um, can enhance dopamine, and the one that's most powerful in this regard is one that I don't recommend. Okay, Um, it's called micunapurines. It's actually, uh, it comes from a bean and it's actually pharmaceutically identical to L-DOPA, which is the immediate precursor to dopamine. It is dopamine. Now, the reason I don't recommend it is I don't recommend that anyone take anything that's the chemical itself, because you're going to throw these reward systems out of whack. You're going to feel great, and then you're going to crash, just like you would if you took a, a drug of abuse like cocaine. But If you take things that are further up the synthetic, the the pathway, the synthesis pathway to dopamine, you start arriving at what are called amino acids. These are things that are extracted from foods. So you make dopamine from the amino acid L-tyrosine. Now L-tyrosine tends to be enriched in certain foods and those foods include red meat and nuts. Those foods, if you eat them, make you secrete a little bit more L-tyrosine and will promote the secretion of dopamine. Now it's low level. And of course, if you ingest too much of anything, if you ingest two ribeye steaks, right? Your, your, your gut is gonna be so filled with blood that you're gonna be tired no matter what, you're not gonna feel motivated. But red meat, and in particular, and nuts, various kinds of nuts increased tyrosine levels, which increased dopamine levels. You can also take, you can purchase and take L-tyrosine. You can buy it in pill form. Now, anyone who's going to take supplements, I highly recommend you go to the website, which I have no affiliation with, but it's brilliant. And I love it called examine.com. This is a a not-for-profit site where you can put in any supplement and it will link you to the studies on this as well as what they call the human effect matrix, where it will show you arrows for upwards. If let's say um, improves focus, it'll show three arrows or or let's say it decreases focus. It'll just say focus with some downward arrows and it will link to the PubMed studies and it will tell you right there if this was done in postmenopausal women or if this was done in kids or if this was done in healthy adults. It gives you all that information and it has some very powerful um, data sets there that are very easy to access. So if you're interested in any supplements that you're taking or that you're thinking about taking, go to examine.com. L-tyrosine, if you take it, You'll notice within about 30 minutes to an hour that you're feeling that be- You feel happier. You said you wanted a happy bill. You feel um, more focused. You feel more energetic. It is a, an antidepressant. You're synthesizing more dopamine. And if you, you know, stack that with a cup of coffee, if that's normally in your practice, don't do this if you have a heart condition. Of course, talk to your doctor about all of this, but before you do it, but you will feel energized and focused and positively in anticipation of things. Now, so Yeah. So, so there are real neurochemical approaches to this. Uh, Obviously I think people should do it with behaviors, but do I occasionally take L-tyrosine? Absolutely. Do I occasionally drink coffee? Almost every day. So,
0: you know, coffee is just another drug in the kit. So, so it seems like for, for optimal, like when you wake up for optimal dopamine to kick in for focus and happiness and, and, you know, pursuing dreams and so on, it's like you 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 get that movement going, so your energy levels go up, so the norepinephrine kicks in. Mm-hmm. Then you kind of pick uh, uh, an achievable goal for the, the morning and a target, so that kind of starts kicking in the anticipation, so dopamine starts to spike, which is enhanced by the norepinephrine spiking. Then if you also kind of maybe skip breakfast, have a cup of coffee, take L-tyrosine, that further enhances the dopamine, so now you're all ready to go you know, for those morning goals, maybe, you know, day goals or whatever.
1: Yeah, and I don't recommend people take L-tyrosine every day. I think you're better off doing it with behavior and behavioral stuff and nutrition. You have to eat every day. So um, the supplementation I think is for occasional use. Now, and there's some warnings on those labels if people are already taking antidepressants and stuff, but for occasional use, I, I find it to be useful. Now, the one thing I want just want to mention And I might reference an article that uh, I published with a guy, a former SEAL team member by the name of Pat Dossett. We had an article in Fast Company about, um, it was more geared towards how to deal with stress. But the first point that we made in there was one that um, if you're feeling stressed, because sometimes being in forward action, you're caffeinated, you slept well, you're in action, can make you feel stressed and, and you're having a hard time focusing. The way you focus is by training the focus system and the way you do that is by setting your sights on on an immediate goal and a horizon that's close in that you know you can accomplish and it can be an even trivial one it can be look I'm going to make my cup of coffee I'm going to sit down I'm going to you know I'm going to take care of four email and that's it that's my first goal. Now, of course, that's not your entire goal for the day, but it's goal-directed behavior. And so you're you're coupling the neural circuits for focus with the neural circuits for goal-directed behavior with the neural circuits for energy and agitation. You're getting those aligned, they're, they're coherent. Whereas when you sit down and you look at your phone and you're getting likes from Instagram and trying to take care of some emails, your neurochemical systems are kind of split. They're incoherent. And it's no wonder that by 11 or 1130, you haven't accomplished much, or you feel like you've been kind of overworked and you're a little discombobulated. So there's a reason why in the SEAL team community, you know, there's the kind of famous YouTube video that Admiral Craven gave about, you know, first thing in the morning, make your bed. There's There's a reason why in those communities and all military communities for that matter, you have regular, predictable, tractable practices that you know you can accomplish first thing in the day. It's not necessarily just about the practice, not about having a well-made bed. It's not about making a cup of coffee. It's about you being in control of the control circuits because you have these brain circuits that are involved in controlling yourself and setting blinders on yourself when you need to and moving forward towards those goals. And if you don't practice those circuits, you don't take control of them, your brain is perfectly happy to go get dopamine any number of ways, get serotonin any number of ways. And so you can train up focus, you can train up goal-directed behavior. And what's cool about it is it's an amplifying effect so that pretty soon you get up in the morning, you find yourself naturally in forward motion and naturally targeted on specific goals.
0: So this suggests a lot of behaviors. Like for instance, if you find yourself just glued to the computer, I don't know, programming or writing an article or whatever, you're sort of saying, "Hey, take a break every now and then, so you could move or, you know, get some forward motion, so you at least keep the norepinephrine up there, which keeps the dopamine still up there."
1: Yeah, you know, there, there's some good evidence that um, for work. You know, we want to do 90 minute, what are called ultradian cycles to distinguish them from circadian cycles. That, you know, working for 90 minutes, then the brain tends to, its attentional mechanisms tend to need a little bit of a rest and then going back to things. There's the Pomodoro technique of, I think it's, you know, bouts of 20 minutes with rest. There are a bunch of different ways to chunk your effort. But I would say, uh, you know, whatever allows you to focus well on a particular goal and move toward that, pick that goal deliberately and move toward it. And that's, it's very normal to have some, uh what I call mental pop-ups for you know the pop-ups in your mind to come come about or you think you need to look at your phone or maybe even do it, but to set that aside. And if you can do this, you will greatly enhance your ability to do this over time. So, um, so that's the dopamine system. It, you know, in a nutshell and how to lean into it. And then through the afternoon, what happens is cortisol and norepinephrine naturally start dropping off. That's why I recommend people get a little bit of sunlight towards the afternoon hours. Maybe that's a good time to get your exercise. It's really, you know, I can't tell people when to exercise. If you start ramping up the dopamine system or drinking a lot of coffee late in the afternoon, that's fine too, right? You, But you might run into a problem where you're going to have challenges getting to sleep in the evening. and you know so as the day progresses it, i don't know if now a good time when we talk about serotonin and about rest yeah. but as the day progresses there are a couple of things you want to do you want to start pulling back on that dopamine and norepinephrine system so obviously not drinking too much caffeine late in the day unless you you know really need to pull an all nighter or something but if you're planning to go to sleep that night pulling back on that system the foods you eat toward bedtime are really key so serotonin is Some people take 5-HTP, which is the immediate precursor to serotonin. You can take that in pill form. I don't recommend that for the same reason I don't recommend L-DOPA for dopamine. It's too close to the natural chemical serotonin. But there's a naturally occurring amino acid called L-tryptophan. This is what's present in Turkey and in complex carbohydrates like pastas and rices and things like that, that is a precursor to serotonin. And so this is why many people find it useful to eat the majority of their complex carbohydrates late in the day. This runs against a lot of advice people have heard, but late in the day to promote the secretion of tryptophan and help them transition to more relaxation and sleep and to eat more of that. So I personally eat low carb during the day, and then I eat my carbohydrates at night because it allows me to relax and sleep. And I don't tend to eat breakfast. I don't tend to eat in the morning. So the L-tryptophan really helps calm down. Now, there are a few other things that can really help improve sleep. And I want to just point to a couple of things that people probably are already doing that are not good, in my opinion. Again, this is just my opinion. First of all, I am not a fan of people taking melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone that was designed to be released at night and it helps the transition to sleep. And I think Matt Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, also talks about melatonin and some of the potential hazards with melatonin. Melatonin's primary role in development is to suppress puberty. It's the reason why kids don't go into puberty until a particular age, they have chronically high melatonin, okay?
0: So- That's funny, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so if you take melatonin at night, what happens to you? Well, it's
1: you know humans, uh, you know their reproductive system can override a lot of these hormonal changes, but it's probably not great for the reproductive hormones, testosterone in men and and estrogen in, in women. It's going to throw that off. All these hormones are in communication with one another, so this is why I'm not a fan of, of 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 melatonin. But also melatonin promotes the transition to sleep, but it won't keep you asleep. And so a lot of people take melatonin, they fall asleep, and then they wake up at two thirty, three in the morning. There are a couple things that can enhance sleep or the ability to get to sleep. So carbohydrate-rich foods, things like turkey and white meats are going to be the proteins that, you know, ideally you'd eat late in the day if you want to rest. Um, things th- are, that are in the supplementation world that, that I take, or for instance, I take something called L-theanine, L-T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. 100 to 200 milligrams of L-theanine promotes the synthesis of GABA. And GABA is what's required to shut off the forebrain so that you can fall asleep. So theanine, I should just uh, one one warning: if you have if you're a night uh, if you're a sleepwalker, a theanine can give you very vivid dreams, um, and so might not be great for sleepwalkers. But there's theanine, and then a compound called magnesium L three L T H R E O N A T E. It's a specific type of magnesium. There's, you can look on examine.com. There's some evidence that it's neuroprotective. So that's good, but it really increases levels of calm and increases GABA and allows you to access more and better slow wave sleep. And I think in the last year, I've recommended that combination to um, maybe, well, through my consulting work to hundreds, but to a couple, I would say a couple dozen people outside of that who have serious insomnia. And all of them are, tell me that they're just, so happy that they're finally able to fall asleep and sleep well. And the, so and these is with things the are magnesium. not sleeping. magnesium, magnesium three and and L-theanine. And some people throw L-tryptophan into the mix because uh, you can buy that. I've never tried L-tryptophan. I don't tend to use that. Some people will take a little bit of um, glycine, which is another neurotransmitter that uh, promotes um, glycine. It's glycine, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, it tends to shut down brain activity a little bit. Glycine's a little bit of a tricky one. Um, I recommend if people are already staying off bright lights in the evening, because that's the one I should have mentioned, try not to surround yourself with bright lights in the evening, especially bright overhead lights, the cells in your eye that wake up the brain, that wake up your body are in the lower half of your retina to view the upper visual field, because they want to view the sun. In the morning, you want to get a lot of that light above head, um, overhead or sunlight into your eyes. And during the day, but in the evening, if you have lights at home, try and keep them low in the room physically. If you have overhead lights, try and dim them. And I'm not too paranoid about blue lights, but you really don't want to get light, bright light exposure between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. I think we talked about this a little bit last time because it can really mess up the dopamine pathway, can mess up sleep. But L theanine and magnesium um, 3 and 8, that combination is really good. And if you are really an aficionado of this stuff, uh, you could throw something into the mix called apigenin. A P I G E N I N, 50 milligrams of apigenin. And it's really a derivative of chamomile extract. It's like uh, if you read your, your kids' books, you know, it's when, P- um, what was it, Peter Rabbit snuck into Mr. McGregor's garden, ate all the chamomile, and fell asleep, right? And then woke up and Mr. McGregor was back in his garden. Chamomile tends to make us a little bit sleepy. And so those three things together, when I take those, uh, I feel like I got clubbed over the head in a good way. And I wake up feeling great and I sleep really well. And for years, I was waking up at four in the morning, having trouble falling back asleep. Um, again, check with your doctor, but these are these are natural compounds in high potency. These are not- What time do you go to sleep at night? So I'm bad about this. I'll be honest, James. I'm, I'm really alert and awake early in the morning. In the afternoon, my brain doesn't tend to work that well. I like to take a nap and relax. And then I tend to stay up till about- 11, sometimes 12, I really, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock, I wake up at three in the morning ready to go, but I rarely get to sleep at 10. I just figure a lot of great things in life happen after 10 p.m. And so I like the way my mind works between 10 p.m. and midnight. It's different than the way my mind works in the morning. It's a different kind of not, it's a little bit more non-linear operations, but sometimes that's good. And so I I use this, um the, I use the naps and I do a practice called Yoga Nidro. I think I mentioned it last time, but where yeah. you lie down and just listen to this script once a day, that helps me fall asleep when I need to. It helps me recapture some rest that I didn't get during the night. So I tend to go to sleep around 11, 11.30 and I wake up around 6.30 and I probably, yes, I could probably use a little bit more sleep. Um, I generally wake up feeling a little bit groggy, but once I get into motion and I start going, I'm good until about three or four in the afternoon and then I need a break.
0: So, so- so you mentioned, um, like for serotonin, you mentioned you don't take L-tryptophan. Maybe you have, uh, you know, some some complex carbs and so on, and that triggers the or or, the, or nuts, and that triggers the L-tryptophan. But uh, do you do anything else for to boost your serotonin?
1: Okay, so um, meat and nuts are good for dopamine and norepinephrine, and a molecule I haven't talked about called the acetylcholine, which is good for focus. Okay. Um, L-tyrosine, nuts, meats—you know those sort of batch together for energy and focus. Caffeine, um, if it's in—you know—if you can take drink caffeine, uh, hydrating. Really Acetylcholine—is
0: well. that a supplement or is that? Acetylcholine a is a
1: naturally occurring neuromodulator that that increases focus. There are ways you can increase that too. There are supplements like um, you can like Alpha GPC um, is a supplement that will increase uh, acetylcholine. But uh, yeah, so. And then for the serotonin pathway, it's complex carbohydrates, white meats, um, like turkey in particular, uh, apigenin, uh, theanine, and magnesium 3 and 8. I have to be careful. All of
0: those are for serotonin. They're they're not serotonin and
1: GABA. Yeah. So I look at my day as two parts, right? For most people, it's gonna be two parts. You wake up, you wanna be energized and alert and focused during the day. And then as nightfall comes, you wanna start transitioning into more relaxation and sleep so that by, you know, whatever, 10, 11, uh, 12 p.m., you're going into a deep slumber and then waking up and ready to do the next thing. I always say the two states that human beings need to master. You know, I I love the discussions about flow and I love those discussions about awe and creativity. That's all fun stuff. But how about we just master these two states? calm and focused or asleep. If you can be calm and focused, you know, calm, alert and focused or asleep, if you can do that, you're, you're in a position to do most everything really well. You know,
0: it, It's such a great point. And, and it makes me think these two states reminds me of basically like two strands of, I hate to call it self-help because I'm about to describe books that I consider not self-help, but like the, the, The focus, the the morning activities, the dopamine, the focus, the anticipation, the moving towards a goal that reminds me of Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning. So instead of like, if you wake up and you want that short term goal, instead of just randomly getting your dopamine by searching, you you know, just thumbing through Instagram, which is like you say is scattered, uh, having some sense of meaning, even if it's tiny, like, oh, I just need to return four emails, that kind of pushes you in the morning, increases the dopamine and keeps you going towards the next goal. If you always have kind of micro meanings for, for each part of that morning, you're going to keep the dopamine going. And then afterwards in the afternoon, I'm switching to a new book, the, the power of now by like Eckhart Tolle, like just just focusing on like what's good about right mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. kind of is the is this serotonin thread of self-help. Yeah, Ram Dass, be here now. Uh, Wherever you yeah. go, there you are, you know? And
1: then on the other side, you've got, um, I love the contrast because I know David, we've done a little bit of work together, you know, like David Goggins, like can't hurt me. It's all about like, you know, David's a master of driving himself toward goals regardless of how he feels internally. I mean, and I'll tell you from knowing him a bit, he is every bit as intense. And every bit is goal-driven and focused and disciplined as he comes across. That's not a persona yeah, that he's created. That's that's him. And so you've got these the, you know, and in Eastern medicine, they might call it yin yin. And um, you know, in the Bay Area, we might call it um, you know, for the San Francisco IT, you'll know what this means, but we might call it like Mission Marina, you know, I don't know what they call it in New York, but it's these different personalities that are more about the here and now and being relaxed or more like hard driving and in pursuit. But we all have these both these systems, I, I, I should mention something about um, the high performance communities. One thing that you find, and I don't think this is discussed much, but one of the thing that you, things that you find about people who are very high performers, especially people that do work in very complex, chaotic environments over long periods of time, is that they master the toggling back and forth between these two systems. They really do. They really master the ability to control their dopamine system and not let it control them. So they're not getting pulled by dopamine by some external force. They're driving toward an external goal and getting dopamine in the process. So they're keeping that close close by, so to speak. They're not getting pulled towards something. They're moving toward it. And they're very good at relaxing. I was very surprised to see that some of the people who are the best performers are really good at going from full intensity to full relaxation.
0: Let me, let me ask you a question. Like, do, have you seen, um, this is gonna sound out of the blue, but have you seen the all the Star Wars movies, like the prequels? I, so
1: I saw the first three of my generation. I didn't see the subsequent three that I'm told were the early ones. I, I sort of can't yeah. get past the uh, the switch up in the in the format. I, I grew up on, right? Star Wars, Return of the Je- yeah. Empire Strikes Back's Return of the Jedi. Like those, are those ones you're referring to?
0: No, there there's this one scene in the um in the very first one, I forgot what it's called now, um where one of the jedi is having like this intense lightsaber battle uh, against one of the bad guys, and then a door shuts between them, like an automatic door, and he has to wait for five seconds. And so he instantly just like goes down on his knees, closes his eyes, and appears to be meditating, and then as soon as the door opens up again, he jumps up and then starts fighting with the lightsaber yeah, yeah. again. And it sounds like that's the toggling between right. dopamine and serotonin, but, but very right. quickly.
1: That's right. And if you can learn to master this, the transitions between these systems, you can see an outsized effect on performance and relationships in your life, right? I mean, you mentioned self-help and the high-performance world and all these business books, a lot of them, business wellness type stuff, is really about trying to amplify one or the other set of circuits. When, whereas I really feel that uh, when you look at true high performers, they have, they have great careers and healthy relationships. That's why I referenced you know Don Kennedy early on. You know, Incidentally, Don was a runner. He used to get up every morning and run. Um, the, the, you find that people, they learn how to tap into both of these and switch back and forth, right? It's not just about being in one mode or the other. Because I, I confess, I grew up in the Bay Area and I've, I've been down to Esalen and it's beautiful and all this stuff. And the, you know, I've done a couple meditation retreats. But the fact of the matter is I was never interested in just sitting and being still for endless amounts of time and then going back to work for endless amounts of time. You know, Ideally, you do this on a day-to-day basis or even across the day. I have a trough in the middle of my day where I try and get into non-thinking, non-speaking, non-doing for maybe ten minutes. That's what yoga nidra is really about. So that in the evening, I get a second round of high focus work because that's just the way my life's organized. I can lean back into training or or intellectual work in a, in the same way, uh, I same intensity and focus I could early in the day because I put a trough in the middle and then I go to sleep. And so you don't have to do this across the lifetime. You know, you see so many people just go 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 and then crash and then they learn how to do this and maybe they disappear and then come back. You want to do this across the 24-hour cycle every day and sometimes more and sometimes less of one
0: or the other. Like when when do you let your gratitude practice kick in? Is it is it when you're making this transition from morning to afternoon or or is it throughout? My gratitude practice- this is related to serotonin. The gratitude
1: practice is definitely related to serotonin. It might tickle the dopamine system a little bit, but the gratitude practice that I really try and incorporate is toward the end of the day. I really try and- uh, you know, focus on what went well, what I've got, the fact that, you know, I'm here. I, you know, fortunately I don't have COVID-19. I, uh, fortunately I'm still employed. um, You know, all these things that I can really be grateful for. I really try and just spend one to three minutes thinking about that. And that does help me make the transition into the evening. It helps me realize that I've got most of the things I need here and I just, put aside any anxiety that that will take me out of pursuit. In fact, once you realize this kind of uh, yin yang, let's just call it that, of the dopamine system and the serotonin system, you start to realize that it's the ability to engage the serotonin system, the ability to deliberately disengage the goal-directed outward-facing behavior and mindset that's going to allow me to re-engage that at a heightened capacity the next day. It's really mental recovery, it's really about shaking off that extra. Uh, I have a friend from the um, SEAL team community who
0: calls it residue.
1: You need to shake off the residue if you want to be able to recover and, and lean
0: back in. And and oxytocin, is that so tied up with serotonin that you don't have to think about it? Or is there extra practices you could do for oxytocin?
1: So oxytocin is an interesting one. Oxytocin is really about long-term pair bonding. Um, it's so, uh, you know, the, after, Sexual intercourse uh, is one time when oxytocin is flooded, uh, flooding the brain in men and women. Um, This ensures some level of of, um, scent exchange. We're still very much uh, scent and pheromonally uh, uh, linked animals, even though uh, we don't often talk about that. It encourages those bonds so that you recognize that person's smell and other features of their chemical biology later, even when you're not reproducing. It's It's mother nature's little trick Um, And it's a a nice trick uh, in most cases. Uh, It's a mother nature's little trick so that, that creates warmth and familiarity. And it really has the effect of neuroplasticity. It starts to rewire the circuits that make you feel safe. And it in particular makes you feel safe in the presence of that person, AKA those chemicals. And babies and mothers and babies in particular, but also fathers and babies, this is the oxytocin system is really ramped up and babies are naturally in a heightened state of plasticity so that their feelings of safety are naturally linked to to that parent, which is really a chemical
0: relationship at that point. Mm. And so is there anything I should do during the day to kind of k- kick the oxytocin stuff in? And, you know, particularly now we're moving into an, uh, uh, maybe we're moving into a new normal where People aren't going to be in as much physical contact on a daily basis. You know, no more shaking hands, no more hugging. Yeah.
1: The oxytocin system is one that really requires some stillness and pause. You know, it's, it's not a fast system. You know, the dopamine system, as I mentioned before, like with humor, you get a quick shot of dopamine or um, you're doing lousy. And all of a sudden, you know, maybe if you're into markets, cause I know you're, you know, a lot about markets, you know, all of a sudden you see an inflection, you're like, ooh, and all of a sudden your alertness goes up and your cue to it, that's dopamine, that's norepinephrine. The serotonin system is more like if someone comes in and puts their hand on your shoulder, kind of leans down and maybe gives you a peck on the cheek. You're like, oh, that feels good. And like, okay, I feel the oxytocin system is going to be more like you took a walk with your spouse or your significant other, you held hands. Maybe you just sat together or you sat with your child and played, played a game. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, you know, wow, this is amazing. Like he or she is growing up and you're feeling a lot of those chemicals flood you. Again, you can take deliberate action for these. Now, there are folks out there that are using oxytocin nasal spray. This is a real thing. I've never tried this um, and I don't recommend it That are because um, a lot of it is through the olfactory system that are using oxytocin nasal spray to try and increase pair bonding in the, you know, I hear rumors, trust me, I only hear the rumors, I've never been around this, but I hear rumors of people stacking oxytocin with ecstasy to try and create bonds between people. Um, I don't recommend going that route. I think oxytocin and the oxytocin system is best, uh, uh, you know, engaged through natural behaviors. You know, Evolution did a good job with this. Um, I can mention, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't work on this and I'm I'm i do not, I don't do it myself, but the ecstasy, since I mentioned that drug, is a very synthetic compound. It doesn't match any of our natural biology. And it's designed to trigger increases in dopamine and serotonin simultaneously so that you strongly reinforce the pursuit of whatever things are happening in that immediate environment. It's like a tight loop between dopamine and serotonin that normally doesn't exist. And there's some very interesting clinical trials that are happening right now with MDMA for, Intractable depression, and for other stuff done by the MAPS group and done out at Johns Hopkins. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the results of those are. But those are complete. That's a very synthetic, artificial situation. It's like uh, cocaine and marijuana at the same time. It's sort of like maybe people do that. I don't know, but it's it's not a place to dabble and play games. It's definitely something that should be done in clinical trials. Um, but it, I just mention it because it's happening. It's kind of interesting because it it reflects this discussion.
0: Well, what's great is I, I feel from this discussion that I understand now so much better not only dopamine and serotonin but all the practices to put in place both with you know how the neurochemicals work, what activities trigger them, what supplements might in, enhance them, what periods of the day they they work better in. Um if I if I follow this regimen that you've described uh, on dopamine for instance, how close is that to let's say someone who takes a nootropic or Adderall or or something. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. I had a there's an article that the BBC
1: published. They contacted me about nootropics and asked about smart drugs and um I think we need to be really careful with the discussion about smart drugs because or nootropics as they're called because let's think about physical exercise just as an example. There's strength, there's endurance, there's flexibility, there's explosiveness and there's mobility. In the realm of smart, you've got creativity, strategy development, strategy implementation. You've got linear thinking, non-linear thinking. There's no drug right now that can tap into each one of those states separately. Um, I I will use this as a, as a moment. I have a book coming out in early January that talks about the states of creativity and focus and some of these other things and, and tools to access them. But right now, the, the nootropics that I'm aware of they will increase focus and alertness. They have things in them that will do that, but they won't specifically tap into certain kinds of mental operations. And so a lot of them have the things that I've discussed here. They have things like L-tyrosine or hordenine or other things. I haven't talked about hordenine, but things that are designed to increase blood flow, increase norepinephrine, and increase the dopamine system. Um, When I look at most of the formulations that are out there, I confess I don't like them. They have things like uh, micunipurines, which is L-DOPA, which I'm not a fan of people taking. Um, I feel like so far I have not seen the really killer nootropic that, that taps into these things in, in the right ways. And I see a lot of, um, a lot of experimenting, but you know, it's, it's nothing that really uh, kind of grabs my attention in a positive way just yet. But uh, sorry, you had another question.
0: Um, But like Adderall, compare compare this regimen with Adderall. So
1: Adderall, um, so I went to college before Adderall, but now I've heard um, some colleges have banned Adderall. I think Duke has banned the use of Adderall, um, except for people that really need it for ADD. So it's interesting. So Adderall was developed as a drug to treat ADD because the four brain circuits that that are very tightly linked up with the dopamine system, those circuits, so for focus and alertness and attention, in kids that have attention deficit, by giving them Adderall, it turned on those circuits and made them hyper-focused. And because kids are in such a state of heightened neuroplasticity, it made the focus circuit stronger, okay? So for adults that have trouble with focus, Adderall is likely to just increase norepinephrine and dopamine, so it has a kind of similar effect, but it, it's almost, um, it, it has the potential for abuse and for addiction because it's very intense um, it's like hitting the accelerator on dopamine and norepinephrine. And it can, in many people, it can crash them down below baseline. Remember, you never want to do a practice that can crash you down below baseline unless it's critical. Like if I have a deadline, I, I pull about 10, 12 all-nighters a year, I confess, because I start grants late or I start papers late. And under those conditions, I fully expect that the two or three days afterwards, I'm not going to be at my best. But for ongoing consistent output, you want to do the behavioral things and maybe some of the supplementation nutrition things that we talked about earlier. Adderall will definitely get you laser focused. It'll get you super alert, but it's going to drop you down far. And it's going to be hard to transition out of it gradually. And if you stop taking it, you're going to have a really hard time getting back down to baseline. You're going to feel like garbage for a while. Whereas the things that I'm talking about, the next day after taking L-tyrosine, provided it's in the appropriate doses and you're not doing it too often, you, you might not feel your absolute best, but you're not going to feel like you you know, like you would had you taken uh, you know, a drug of abuse or, or Adderall the previous day.
0: Well, what about, um, is there any point in the day where I want endorphins to kick in just to kind of get that opioid feeling? So it's interesting you ask that.
1: Right now, we can't really point to any specific need for that. I, I, do, I have a practice where once a week, I do a long run. Sometimes it's a hike but I do a long run. I just go out for, you know, 60 minutes or more and I just run and I'll go slow and I just build up that endurance system. Um, I, that's just my personal practice. I've, I like, I'd much prefer to do one of these kind of high intensity training things where you're, you know, moving some heavy objects, jumping around and moving around quickly. That feels good to me on a more regular basis, but I do like to tap into that uh, opioid system. The, the through running the opioid system also allows your forebrain to turn off. If you ever go on a long run, provided you're not listening um, to something that requires a lot of attention, so music or an audiobook or a podcast would be fine, but something that doesn't require, like you don't have to feel like you have to stop constantly and pay attention to every little bit, then the forebrain tends to kind of shut off and you get into these kind of pseudo sleep states. So things like flotation tanks, meditation yoga nidra, long runs. They tend to turn off the forebrain and they take you out of linear operations. What I mean by linear operations is when you're anticipating what's going to happen next, what am I doing in relation to that? And how can I maneuver in the best way possible? Uh, Just as an example, it used to be that going to the store to buy groceries was a kind of, you could be on the phone, you were kind of in a, it was almost like a little bit of a dream. You're grabbing things off the shelf. You're kind of looking at things, you move through, you might talk to somebody or not. Now it's all hyper linear. Right? It's that like, you have to pay attention to where other people are, wait your turn in line. Do they have a mask on? Are they coughing or did they touch something? And then you don't want to be in constant mode of linear operations, no matter what they are, because they're taxing. You want to devote those linear operations to the things that matter most to you, the big builds in your life, the big business builds, the big, you know, creative builds. So in general, a long run for me is my mental reset to kind of turn off my forebrain and allow me to shift back into the week. That's why I do it on Sundays.
0: Yeah, I think this is a great guide overall to kind of how to manage the different mental states and stay in control of them rather than them controlling you. Uh, l- l- let me ask you, this is like more, it's gonna sound a little stupid, but it's a situation that kind of recurs in my life over the past 30 years and it's gonna sound odd. So whenever I, I find whenever I'm unhappy in a life situation, I'll get, addicted to one thing in particular, and I can't stop. And it's playing one minute chess online. So I have to play, I'll I'll just play 24 straight. If I, let's say it's like 1992, I was unhappy in a relationship and I just started, I would just start playing 24 hours a day of one minute chess. So let's say a chess game is 40 moves. So you're making a move every, uh, you know, three quarters, three quarters of a second or a second and a half. And Uh, and I would just play over and over and over again, and I wouldn't be able to stop. And I always would recognize, I recognize over time that, oh, I only tend to do this when I'm unhappy. And it seems related to somehow like some need for this quick dopamine fix over and over and over again. And then that feeling of more that you were describing. Yeah. Because maybe I wasn't happy with my here and now. Yeah, I think it's an adaptive
1: um, thing that that you're describing. It takes you into a mode of thinking, hey, wait, there, once you can reengage that circuit, just like people that you know get up and engage in a practice, it's not directly related to their larger goal, but it reengages the goal-directed circuitry. It redirects the control circuitry. It's it's a it's a small but um, not insignificant way of taking control of your neurology. And I think what's nice about it, because um, I don't know how to play chess, so I have chess envy. I have always wanted to learn how to play <laughs> chess. Um, what's nice about it is that you're. 100% in control of it. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's only a minute. This stimulus is very it's fast. The stimulus is very I'm fast. I'm going to win or lose look, right away. Look, for me, there's certain music, right? I mean, I'm a human being. I've had my lows and, uh, you know, I've had life events and lows. And there have been times when I have to return to a particular, you know, particular genre or, or of music or listen to something. And I realize it brings back my sense of possibility. Sometimes that music makes me a little agitated, maybe even a little angry, but you know, it gives me my fight back because there's nothing worse than being back on your heels. My, I have a, a good friend who, was in, who did nine years in the SEAL teams. His name's Pat Dossett, and he has a great saying. He always says, keep your center of mass forward. Just keep your center of mass forward. And sometimes that is even just by doing the dishes. Right, And I love that because I said, what's that really about? And he said, well, when I, he was describing himself, he said, when I wake up in the morning, there's always the potential to get mentally back on my heels. And I said, really, like, I I didn't know that he did that. And he said, yeah, you know, I could end up mentally back on my heels, but if I get up and do something, I've got my center of mass forward. And just by rewarding myself internally for having my center of mass forward, then I tend to lean forward more and more. And incidentally, he's remarkably good uh, he has a family, he's got, you know, young twin girls. He's, you know, he's happily married. He's very good at being center of mass forward, hard driving from 5 a.m. or so. He's an early riser. We do these long swims together in the morning until about 6 p.m. And then he's still center of mass forward, but it's about dinner, connecting with his family, getting the house tidy for the next day and transitioning into a, a really good night's sleep. Very regimented. But so center of mass forward doesn't always mean in, Rabid pursuit, you know. Sometimes um, it's center of mass forward on a Netflix show that you want to watch. It's like I'm going to do this, and I know it's good for me. But you're in control of it. So I love the one minute chess
0: example. Um, we all have our own. Except it would be too. It would be too addictive for me. Like it was really <laughs> just about getting. The, I couldn't even play five minute chess. That was too slow. It was really about getting constant feedback so, somehow. So dopamine can
1: serve as a as a bit of a ramp. Or it can serve as a bit of a of a tunnel that you can go down. So what it sounds like you were ramping off dopamine and then going and then going into other things. I, I'll make it a real quick story. There's a guy I know who's a who is a very famous artist who he became a gambling addict and then he finally got over his gambling addiction and he got a, addicted to Angry Birds. He was playing Angry Birds on his on his phone like 23 hours a day or something. It was ridiculous. And he got over that and he rolled into something else and he realized this isn't really about the external thing. This is really about learning how to. How to control this system, and we talked about this, and actually he and so what he has to do because he 's a kind of extreme case is he has to diversify where he gets his dopamine, and he actually has to he has to have someone else uh, control all this for him. his girlfriend gives him a schedule of what he 's going to do because he just can 't do it now that 's an extreme example then you 've got people like I mentioned like my my friend Pat um, who you know you know picked this kind of Mentality up in uh, from the SEAL teams center of mass forward, but can do this 5 a.m. to 5, 6 p.m., very regimented, 6 p.m. to bedtime, very more relaxed mode. People are different, but everyone I think can work with the dopamine and serotonin system. We all have them, we're all born with them. And some of us are a little asymmetric, right? Uh, you know, some people have been over exercising one or the other, and they might want to pursue um, the thing that they're not so proficient at. And so hopefully we provide I- some tools for that.
0: I, I like that kind of diversifying the sources of dopamine. And I think that's what I was lacking then. And so I kind of just attached myself to the one thing where I knew I can get like dopamine very quickly over and over again. Well, remember the the reason I say that addiction
1: is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure is because mm-hmm. it maps onto the neurobiology. And I'll even go a step further since we're having this discussion. And um, I, I see if addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure, enlightenment to me is a progressive broadening of the things that bring pleasure. I don't know about true enlightenment in the kind of Buddhist context or in any context. But then again, I don't know anyone who can put a strict definition on enlightenment because it's not a medical phenomenon. But from my life, you know, my experience in my life, the more things that can br- bring me pleasure, the more sh- certain I am that I can be in pursuit of pleasure from things that are outside my immediate sphere of attention and existence. Or not uh, outside the immediate sphere of my attention and grasp, and that I can move toward, as well as the things that are that I already have and that I can look to at any moment if I want to feel good.
0: Well, uh, Professor Andrew Huberman from Stanford Neurobiology Neuroscience, Uh, it's been so great. I've learned so much and I'm definitely going to start applying a hundred percent of these techniques. I'm going to order supplements. I'm going to do my dopamine in the morning, my serotonin later in the day, start kicking in GABA to sleep at night. And I've, re- I've written a ton of notes, which I'll summarize in an article to go along with this podcast, but w- your book's coming out in January. So you have to come on a couple of times before then. So we start seeding the book. Cause I want to hear now next about the neurochemistry of creativity. This is going to be interesting. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, thanks so much for having me on again. I I'm really
1: enjoying our conversations and, um, and greatly appreciative. Uh, definitely read the, the, you know, approach the Altair scene with caution. You know, don't, don't do it every day, James. I don't want you, uh, you know, treat your dopamine system with care, but um, but do keep me updated how uh, they work for you and your sleep and your focus and your attention. You already seem to have a lot of energy and focus at, by my read, but um, you, I would love to- Yeah, but get- I,
0: bur- I burn out by later in the day. And then it's a matter of scheduling myself so that I can focus on the here and now mm-hmm. instead of, you know, just over-scheduling too much later in the day. Great, well, um,
1: I'm greatly appreciative of the opportunity to be on here again, and, um, and thank you so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, Andrew, thanks so much, and let's, let's talk soon.